Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be interviewing Dr. Colin Copus about his book titled In Defense of Counselors, published by Manchester University Press in 2022. The book is an unashamed defense of local representative democracy, primarily in England, um, and of those elected to serve as counselors. Um, and in a lot of ways, it is quite literally what the title is. It's a defense. It's breaking down um, inaccurate assumptions, whether that's from the media, whether that's from central government um, or for the public, to really actually understand properly who local councillors are, um, what they're trying to do, what the system is that they're trying to work within. Um, And so it's a really helpful way of understanding this thing that Actually, a ton of people have this job, 18,000 local councillors in England, I believe. Um, And yet something that's not necessarily always well understood. So it's a really helpful book um, on a lot of different levels. And I'm delighted to welcome you, Colin, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Could we start off, please, by you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book? Yes, of course. Uh, Well, I'm an emeritus professor of uh, local politics from De Montfort University and a visiting professor uh, at the uh, Centre for Local Politics at Ghent University in Belgium. And I think most of my research has been focused very heavily on local government, on local politics, uh, the role of the councillor and party politics in local government uh, particularly. And through the 25 or so years that I've been researching local government and local politics and working very closely uh, with councillors and government uh, and parliament uh, on various inquiries into uh, local government and the role of the council. It became very quickly apparent that I think councillors get a bad rap. Um, they uh, What they do, their office, uh, the powers that they have, the powers that they lack is not fully understood, uh, certainly amongst the public. Um, And there does seem to be this view emanating from central government um, that councillors are not not quite up uh, to the job and to the task in hand. As you said, there are around about 18,000 councillors across the whole of England. And, And in that group of people, you're going to get the broad range of all of the human vices and all the human virtues. Um, but to argue that all councillors are somehow deficient or not up to the job um, is plainly and obviously inaccurate when you start to look at what they do and you start to look at the uh, issues that they have to tackle. And indeed, when you start to look at what being a councillor means to their own private life, to their career um, prospects, the interference it can have uh, on a day-to-day basis in, in, in on the way in which councillors 
lit other parts of their life. And this sort of often very unfair view of both the councillor and the office of the councillor, I, I deliberately separate the two out, just needed to be um, addressed and redressed. So what I've tried to do is to say, well, there are three key audiences, um, three sets of images about the, the councillor. One rests with the centre, one rests in the media locally and nationally, uh, and the other rests with the public. Um, and quite often that image is inaccurate. Uh, it, it overinflates the powers that councillors have. It's often inaccurate because it simply belittles some of their efforts. Um, or it's inaccurate because there's this sort of widely held belief that somehow councillors are in it for themselves. They're in it for the money. Um if you want to be a millionaire or make a lot of money, you don't get elected to your local council. Uh, you know, there, there are much better ways of earning a living. Um, and as I said earlier, many councillors make tremendous sacrifices in terms of their time, their job, their families, their social life. Um, and I think that just needed to be um, explored and made public. Fair enough. Um, I think those are some pretty good motivations that I'm sure spurred you on um, in this process. And this is quite an involved process as well that came through this book. It's not just um, from one research project, but from stuff you've been working on in a number of different ways. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about kind of where the data and research um, that ends up in this book kind of comes from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it was a long time um, coming and it, it it, I, I drew the data together from a number of research projects that I'd been uh, involved in um, and also from uh, the work that I'd, I'd undertaken with councillors across the years. So in some respects, it's it's a piece of political anthropology rather than political science. You know, I, I, I sort of lived among, worked with, understood the strange, bizarre rituals and language that, that councillors um, uh, are immersed in um, and drew on all of that uh, from from work that I've done over a large number of, of years. Um, and I think that gives a particular insight that a one-off research project can't give. Uh, and in fact, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always working one way or another with, with councillors and every piece of work I do is a research interview. There's there's new material, there's new uh, ways of elaborating certain concepts, there's new ways of understanding the work that they do. Of course, there's new challenges that they face almost every day. And I came back... Uh, quite recently from the local government association conference thinking I've got to write another book <laughs> because there's so much new since this one has come out that 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 our councillors are struggling with new challenges always that pressure from the centre so as I say the research is really um, just a long piece of uh, working um with those people we elect to our to our local councils, trying to make sense of what they do, trying to work out where the um, uh, uh, the connections are, what concepts and ideas we might use to understand the issues that they're that they're faced with, and how can we how can we push the understanding and study of local government and local politics in a way that's distinct from 
political science generally um, and and the study of other political concepts, political theory and, 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 and all the rest of it. Because there is a, 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 an area of understanding here that, that doesn't quite fit in the models that we often use, I think, as, as political scientists. And so what I'm trying to do is just say, look, this is the experiences our councillors have. How can we make sense of it? Well, let's get into how some of how you make sense of it in this book. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but hopefully we can make some sense of it, um, do some justice to the detail that goes into the book. Um, so to start off with, I'd like to kind of start with the sort of role of the councillor bit, particularly. Um, and I must say, as a reader, I did find it quite helpful to kind of separate out the people who hold those roles and the roles to really sort of have a go at understanding the structures here. Um, so can you tell us about kind of why why are there inherently tensions in the role of councillor and what are these tensions? They, they emerge because... Um, there are there are multifaceted aspects to the work that councillors undertake, and we often use this broad term representative. Uh, and 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 in some respects, we you know we we still adhere to the term representative local democracy, which starts you sort of thinking about representative theory and 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 how we understand that. But the roles that councillors undertake don't always fit neatly into the way in which we might understand other political processes. So, I mean, there's been a huge amount of work over the decades studying the various roles of the council. But what we know is, although they are, um, uh, there are key roles, they change and develop over, over time in the way that um, they can be conducted and the various focus that councillors might give to them. So, you know, and this is where I sort of, um, try to develop this idea of, look, there are a set of roles and responsibilities that councillors have that are internal to the council, that they're about what the council as a institution, both a representative institution as a service providing institution, um, has to undertake. So they have to focus, whether they want to or not, whether it was what motivated them to stand or not, they have to focus on the business um, of the council whatever council that is, whether it's a county, a district or a unitary, they, they have to focus on what that council does. Uh, so they're in various decision-making uh, committees or they're in various policy development or oversight committees in which they're focused very much, very often, on the internal running of the council and the services that it provides. The other dimension to that is that they have a legitimate role which often gets questioned and criticised, I have to say, but they have a legitimate role to challenge and question the officers uh, of the council. They have the right to ask for information from them. They have the right to get explanations and justifications for some of the things that uh, uh, the council senior management are doing. So all of these sorts of things are inwardly focused. Then there's the party role. I mean, uh, across England, currently something like 88% of all councillors come from one of the three main political parties. It's been as high as 95%, I think, over the over the decades. Well, that's a whole chunk of that 18,000 or so um, councillors that come from one of the three main national parties. And part of their 
job as well is to represent those parties, to uh, pursue their interests, to make decisions within the framework of the policies and the ideologies of that particular party uh, as well, as well as using a wider uh, set of processes to represent people outside of the council. So this word representation needs to be sort of divided into the various elements that uh, or subtask, if you like, that, that councils undertake, which I've tried to do uh, and describe in the uh, in the book. And then there's that external part where uh, the council is the representative of their their patch, their ward, or their division. Um, so when there's a crisis between what people within the ward or the division might want and what their party is saying, they somehow have to manage and balance that competing views those competing tensions who then do they represent and uh, often for councillors in our country the word the, the the answer is they represent their party uh so they have that particular uh, facet to their to their to their work one of the new roles that's developed and it, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of what councillors do is this interaction with the outside world as central government has sort of taken services away from local government, taken responsibilities away from it and placed them with other organisations, quangos, with the private sector. Uh, there's a there's a need for someone to join all of that up. We, we have a whole host of organisations that provide uh, public services, uh, that spend public money, that develop public policy, uh, and they do all of that without a single vote being cast. And if anybody is going to hold those to account, to challenge them, to question them, to critique them, to try and draw all of those organisations, the police, the health service, and all of those other bodies, uh, into some sort of coherent whole that reflects what's happening uh, within a very specific locality. Well, if it's not the local council and our local councillors that are going to do that, then nobody will. Nobody else will hold those organisations to account, question them, challenge them, criticise them, try and shape what they do. Um, and that, as I found during sort of all of the time I've been working with councillors, that particular role is growing. Uh, more and more pressure at two different levels, a strategic level, to try and influence strategically what these other organisations do, whichever one it might happen to be. And then at the operational level, to try and ensure that those organisations deliver services on the patch, the area that the councillor uh, represents. So, you know, there's a whole a whole host of different roles that councillors are uh, undertaking and I, I and what I've tried to do as I say within the book is to explain those set them out and to say actually look we are asking rather a lot of people who are often part-time uh, often in full-time jobs uh, uh, to conduct all of these very different things and often and to do that often with very little support from their own councils uh, who are more set up to understand the needs of you know running services and supporting senior managers than they often are in supporting the role of what the people we elect to those uh, to those councils do. It certainly is 
quite a lot of things um, that local councillors have to do and contend with and consider and try and weave all the pieces together. So what motivates people to take that on and stand for councillor? Uh, It's a really interesting question, that. And uh, there are so many uh, different um, uh, sort of answers from from councillors to that. Often, um, I mean, I can generalise, I think, and I can I can sort of put those in a in a way that is very broad, um, given the fact that there are so many different motivating factors. But um, the first, I think, is as I said earlier, many of our councillors come from uh, one of the three main political parties. Part of what motivates many, many of them is that they want to uh, to represent their party, that they're committed to this organisation. Uh, uh, they, they, they are part and parcel of the vision that this party has for both uh, the country as a whole and their localities and it's a way of supporting and promoting uh, the interests of uh, their political party i think many are very overt and honest and open about about that others have got uh, uh, well put it this way there are several motivating factors there's very rarely one factor that motivates but there might be one that tips the edge uh, for somebody that that finally gets them to say yes, I'm going to stand. So others just have a desire to improve the area in which they live. Uh, they're committed to that area. They observe what's going on, uh, and entering into local politics is one way in which they want to uh, to change and improve the area that they that they live in. Um, others are motivated by. Um, uh actually looking at their council and thinking i can do that that's a job i can do uh uh you know let let me have a go um others are motivated by this sort of sense of um wanting to pay back in inverted commas um uh to the area that they were born in that they grew up in and that and that they now feel they owe a debt to and this is one way in which they uh in which they can pay it back um so I think there are all sorts of uh, motivating uh, factors that, that, as I say, that there isn't one single one, but there are many. And and the other thing is we 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 don't use the term public service very much. I think you know politics seems to have sort of corroded and and um, be decaying at the moment. But quite often, councillors are very much signed up to this notion of um, public service Um, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do because there is something that needs to be achieved because there is something that um, uh, uh, I I can I can contribute to this particular area Uh, and so that idea of this being a public service um, is is part of what motivates uh, councillors and it's actually quite good to know that that um, that idea of uh, public service hasn't collapsed, hasn't disappeared, and it's very much a motivating factor for um, for for some of our councillors. That's in a lot of ways quite reassuring. 
um, as someone who's obviously not a local councillor, to sort of hear kind of the different reasons that uh, draw people to it, but also sort of this underlying um, kind of need to help with something or need to do something. Um, And I'd love to, you've spoken a bit about kind of the internal external aspect of it, the idea of the multiple audiences um, and in many ways, kind of the multiple constituencies in a way that councillors um, have to think about, uh, even if it's not officially their constituency, you know, thinking about how this relates in the wider party, for example. Um, there are lots of these different audiences. And one of the terms um, you bring up in the book is really interesting. And I'd love to ask you about it because it's one thing to kind of come into a role like this, decide you want this role, get it, and then learn about all these different things and figure out, okay, hang on, how do I keep it all straight in my head? But a counsellor is not just meant to understand the system, they also have to make decisions um, within this very complicated system. So you talk in the book about real local politique. What is this? And how does it help us understand the process counsellors of of making decisions by these counsellors? Yeah, I I think it it links, well, Firstly, I've just uh, uh, scurrilously stolen the term and stuck the word local in between <laughs> the words real and politic. Um, uh, and it, it's based on that tension. There's another tension that exists for all councillors between what they uh, might want to achieve from an ideological position uh, and what they uh, can actually achieve given the constraints of their office, given um, that actually our councillors are not particularly powerful uh, in their in their office in, in terms of what they can get done and in terms of this external world that I that I, I, I spoke about. So it's about that tension between here's my ideological view of the world, this is what I want to achieve locally, but the government won't let me do that. The the resources won't let me do this, the financing. So it's the way in which those really smart councillors and those that are there to achieve something will be much more um, philosophical in their approach, much more realistic, um, much more pragmatic, much more um, focused on achieving what they can achieve rather than a sort of winner-takes-all, uh, we must, um, you know, if, if I can't get the full ideological impact of what I believe in, I'm not going to do anything. So that there is that tension. And many councillors are going to be confronted with issues um, uh, where they have to be extremely pragmatic and probably act in a way in which um, uh, you might not expect them to, as a councillor uh, from a particular political party. And there are examples, um, you know, across across local government where Conservative councils will take things into municipal control and Labour councils will privatise them because that's what they've had to do. So it's that it, it enables you to say, OK, we have a heavily party politicised uh, local government system. We have a party politicised system that operates on the basis of national political parties, and that's the real distinguishing part of all this, that bring all of their national policies, all their national ideology, all of their national enmities and disagreements and um, uh, uh, hatreds to a certain extent, extent with them, 
but then they are confronted with doing a job that requires them to be pragmatic and and realistic so it was just a way of trying to say you know there is a uh, there is a, a, a different way of understanding what our councillors do, and that's simply to look at how they are forced into um, or, or indeed voluntarily embrace realistic um, approaches to what they have to do. I mean, one of the other motivating factors, and it links to this issue of uh, that, that we're discussing, um, is what I've described as uh, the democratic spirit. Um, it's very much linked to the idea of public services, but councillors have a very deep-seated belief that the democratic system is the best way of um, resolving political, local political differences and that representative democracy um, is actually a, a, you know, a duty and, a, and, and also a privilege that they, that they undertake. And it's because of that belief in you know, what I've called the democratic spirit and belief in that way of doing things that um, uh, they are able to be pragmatic and although in many of our uh, council meetings you might well see um, uh, uh, you know intense party political arguments played out in a full council meeting um, uh, the real everyday working relationships can be very different and why is that? Why are they different day to day? I think it's it, it's because um, uh, well, it's for two reasons. One, because that's the way to get something done. I mean, if you are uh, in opposition in a council, if you are um, uh, faced with knowing that every vote that is taken you will lose, that's the reality of the vast majority of our our councils when you're in opposition. If you you know, are faced with that, then even as an opposition member, if you want to achieve something, you have to shift from a very broad ideological position into um, into one that enables you to negotiate, to compromise, to try and influence that group that's in control. Yet you can have your bit of knockabout in uh, in the council chamber. Uh, you know, everybody in local politics enjoys the bear pit that's the full council meeting. Um, but if that's all you do, then you're not likely to achieve very much, certainly sitting on the opposition benches. And equally, the same goes for if you are in the minority faction within the ruling group. Unless you are willing to compromise and negotiate and discuss and seek to influence, then... Um, uh, you also are likely to rattle about on the back benches and, 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 and not achieve anything. So I think it's for councillors, it's very much about um, do I want to be here and achieve something or do I not? And the reality of it is most councillors, overwhelming majority, will want to be able to achieve something in, in, in their office. Fair enough. Who doesn't want to achieve things? Um, so that. It was interesting you were talking sort of about strategies of influence, right? And the trade-off between ideology, pragmatism, the difference between um, public and kind of behind closed doors. Um, and if we extend that then to the larger sort of communities, constituencies, etc., that local councils, uh, councillors, as you mentioned at the beginning, have to kind of be in the middle of all of these different networks. It's not just about the other people who happen to be on local council with them in those particular rooms. 
Um, are there any other strategies um, or things you've sort of seen that counsellors do to have influence in ways um, that maybe aren't sort of venues where there's an official vote or something like that, for example, in their wider party or up at the national level or anything like that? Well, there are two different sort of forums in which this this can take place, and you're you're absolutely right. There's there's um, uh, the forum of the party, and there are some members who will be some elected members who will be uh, active regionally within their parties, and they'll be active nationally uh, within their political parties. One of the things that often surprises me is how those networks that councillors have or can have within their parties doesn't always bring home the bacon for uh, either their own councils or indeed for um, local government as a whole. I mean, I, I, I often, you know, suggest to councillors, look, you know, you have a an MP in your uh, in your constituency who's the minister for so and so, and is about to do this to local government. Why don't you just tap them on the shoulder and whisper the word reselection in their ear? Um, quite often, councillors don't use the power that they have got within those sorts of networks. But those that do, and I mean, this is again, you will, you know, with with so many councillors across the country, some will want to operate regionally and nationally, and others simply will not. It will be enough for them to operate within their localities and within their within their council. Those that do uh, operate at different levels are using all of those sort of political skills of debate, deliberation, compromise, carving up alliances and coalitions around particular issues to get their party at different levels to uh, to respond to the pressures that they're they're putting onto them. So that so there's that aspect. You're absolutely right of the the, the party network, um, which councils can use for for influence. But then there's the more direct one, and this is what councillors talk to me more openly and more enthusiastically about, is this idea of operating within networks of other organisations. And there's no magic trick to it. In fact, it's it's very, very hard work for them. And, and often one of the shocks that new councillors get when it comes to actually talking to anybody, let alone organizations outside of the council one of the shocks they get is the word councillor doesn't tend to open up doors for them so ringing up uh i don't know almost any other organization you, you know a, a local transport company and saying hello i'm the councillor for so and so doesn't immediately get them the response that they that they might want it sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't but where it does when they do contact the police or the health service or, 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 or a transport company or the water companies or, or all sorts of external bodies and they start to get some influence over either strategy or, or um, operational aspects it comes after a lot of hard work you know, a lot of building relationships with particular people working within those organizations a lot of attending meetings a lot of developing good partnerships with those and then somebody leaves and they have to start all over again uh, and that's the frustration and the problem for councillors is that they have to challenge these organizations they have to try and draw them into some form of cohesive movement across the locality but they lack the l- legal powers 
to be able to do this. There is, for example, in scrutiny, uh, one of the one of the processes that councillors have to have to undertake. There is no right to subpoena uh, 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 somebody from another organisation to come and talk to councillors or to listen to them. Um, it has to be done by negotiation, by pressure, by compromise. Um, and so those processes operate on two levels. One, institutionally, what can the council do to pressurise these organisations? And, and two, individually, what can councillors do to pressurise these organisations and to develop relationship with them? So there's no magic sort of bullet. There's no um, uh, magic wand that can be waived for councillors. It's just hard work. It's just many phone calls, many meetings many opportunities to develop that working relationship with uh, with others and i don't think that that side of the uh, uh, of the role is understood certainly by the public or indeed by councils themselves as an institution which don't seem to resource councillors very well in conducting that sort of work they're very much on their own Unless you're a leadership, you know, unless you are the leader of the council or you are uh, uh, a cabinet member. <clears throat> if you're uh, an ordinary backbench councillor and you're attempting to construct these networks, often you're on your own. You do it under your own steam, you do it on your own time, and you do it often with very little support. Not making this sound uh, the most fun job in the world, I have to say. Um, but definitely a very interesting challenge. So I can see some of the appeal, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, this thing about... <laughs> I often, to be honest with you, when I ask councillors, why do you do this? I often find myself saying, why do you do this? Why would anybody do this? <laughs> why would anybody take on this role um, that, that, that lacks uh, powers, that often lacks resources... Um, that is time demanding and um, uh, and demanding on your family and your work prospects um, and you know that that's one of the that's one of the sort of issues I've explored in the book about as we touched on earlier about about motivation but it is a real uh, genuine question uh, but um, when I've asked that question to councillors as well despite all of these difficulties, there is that real sense of achievement when you you get something changed, when a policy is changed, when a new facility uh, is, is provided, when um, uh, some new commercial enterprise comes into the into the locality, when you get somebody's um, piece of casework which may have dragged on for years and years finally solved and resolved for that individual that sense of achievement and it's a real valuable and necessary part of the role and i think that compensates for the misery and I've, again councillors are entitled to enjoy themselves it's like anything isn't it if you if you stop enjoying it then then stop doing it but i think those challenges don't necessarily take away from that sense of achievement and that and that real um, uh, change in people's lives that can be made by by the decisions that you take or, or the decisions that you get other bodies to take. So I think that that's a really helpful um, sort of insight 
into the mind of the counsellors, um, backed up by the massive amount of time you spent interviewing them. Um, but I want to sort of, instead of thinking from the counsellor's mind inside out, for a moment, kind of take the other perspective and the outside look at the counsellor, and particularly um, the view from the central government, um, or as you sometimes call it in the book, the quote, official mind. Um, why why do we need to understand how the central government views councillors? What are the impact of central government's view on local council? Well, I think so much of what our councillors do is is shaped uh, uh, and, and overseen and in some cases controlled by um, central dictate, uh, by Whitehall uh, and by Westminster. Um, and we have one of the most centralised systems of, uh, of, of of local government, certainly across across Europe. Um, we have local government that is uh, more heavily overseen, more heavily controlled um, uh, than than most uh, across Europe, um, and that comes because the official view of both local government and of the people we elect to it is often that somehow they, as we said right at the very beginning, they are somehow not up um, to the job. Uh, And therefore they need to be controlled, they need to be overseen, they need to be directed. Somehow they can't be trusted to deliver for their areas. Now, you know, that that is quite a a stark challenge um, and a stark reading of the official mind, which which no doubt, you know, many civil servants and many ministers will, um, you know, vehemently disagree with. No, no, no. We, we, to which the response is, well, why don't you free up local government then? If, if this view of your view is inaccurate, why don't you free up councillors? Why don't you provide them with more uh, resources why don't you provide them with more freedoms so it's important to understand how the center looks at local government because that way we can understand what local government is able to do and some of the achievements that it has against all of these constraints and all of these uh, 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 mistrust shall we say that 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 exists so that view is it, it is important to understand because that is also important to understand because if if we understand it, we can challenge it. You know that view that somehow local government and councillors are not up to the task of what what they have to do is simply not accurate, and it has to be challenged because of um, because of that. And different government departments will display this view in different ways. Uh, uh, but what we do know is that you know we we, we see local government very much controlled, very much. Um, dictated to and there is very few challenges to that uh, and, and councillors as a, I think I've explained in the book find that immensely frustrating um, uh, and, and there is the, 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 the double frustration I suppose is that there is little view that this will change new ministers come and go but the the civil service stays in place and you know a new minister will arrive in local we just had a new local government minister appointed yesterday he's been in the job before um twice but uh you know he's come back now through a third stint so we just have to wait and see what his view is but i don't think there's any sign 
that um, uh, he is you know necessarily going to start freeing up local government and uh, 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 and giving our councillors the resources they need to be able to get on with the jobs we expect them to do. Um, so we need to understand it so we can challenge it. So why is there this inaccurate view then? And in fact, in some senses, um, the book conveys it as not even just inaccuracy. There's also some amount of sort of disdain from central government to local council. Where is that coming from, given how inaccurate it is? I think it it, it comes because there is not um, the right sort of interaction between uh, local and central government. There's not the right sort of relationship. Um, great swathes of the, the, the civil service will often look at local government, as I said earlier, as somehow deficient, as somehow not quite up to the job, as not as good as the centre is at getting things done. Now, you know, when we look at... Um, we look at uh, uh, the response to COVID. What you find is that is that quite often the really important stuff was happening on the ground. It was being carried out by local government and being carried out by uh, by our councillors. Um, uh, and and I don't think local government quite got the credit that. Uh, it, rec- it, it it deserved, and our councillors didn't get the credit they deserved from the way in which they responded to that pandemic. Because this this disdain isn't something that's grown up over the last five ten years. This has been a long standing um, uh, post war view that has just got stronger as time has gone by, um, and it displays itself with. In some respects, sort of the contempt with which local governments often uh, uh, often treated. I've had you know um, stories told to me of uh, of ministers uh, changing appointments at the drop of a hat. You know, people have gone down to London to meet a minister. Sorry, he's far too busy to see you today. And, uh, and this sort of um, you know, when we deal with these these councillors, uh, well, you know, we've got important things to do and we'll get round to them it's it's a it's it's just a mindset that needs as i said as i said earlier needs to be challenged um and why it's there i think through a force of habit i mean when you look at the relationships between local government and central governments or even regional governments where they exist um across the continent yeah, local government is often viewed as the uh, as a junior partner. It's not perfect by any manner of means, but that willingness to negotiate, that willingness to operate alongside local government as a partner, not as an agent, um, is 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 much clearer. And I think that's part of the problem we have here is that the centre sees local government as an agent to get its stuff done rather than acknowledge that our councillors are also um, a product of an electoral system. They also have an electoral legitimacy. They also are able to uh, undertake uh, uh, particular um, uh, roles that they need the powers and responsibilities to to do. Again, we're, we're just a long way um, from, I think, getting that equal partnership and mm. it's particularly frustrating because when you look at the quality 
of council leaders across the, the country and you look at the quality of some of the senior managers across um, the country in local government, um, you know, a little bit of recognition of what they do and what they uh, can achieve is, um, you know, would, would be welcome. I think. A bit of humility on the part of the centre would be uh, would be welcome. And I don't mean that sort of faux humility of of uh, tugging the forelock and uh, uh, ringing a cap, but, you know, a genuine appreciation and understanding of what it is our councils do, which is partly what motivated the book, to be honest with you. Um, Fair enough. You know, you're just getting it wrong at the centre. Fair enough. Um, so besides the idea of, um, I guess, uh, getting rid, dispelling inaccuracies um, and providing knowledge such that more respect can be paid to um, the current roles. You also in the book talk about um, ideas or proposals for changing the role of council, rethinking it, reconfiguring it. Um, what are some of the ways that you think that might be possible? Um, maybe you, you do give a bunch of them, um, but maybe if you could give us one sort of smaller tweak and maybe one more radical idea. Yeah, I, I mean, it's always, it's always, well, it's a very difficult question because there's just so much to, um, you know, so much to go through, really, I think. Um, but I think I, I started off by saying that, um, uh, you know, we need to distinguish um, uh, the, the office from the holder. I think that's, that's always uh, important that the, you know, we have this office of local councillor and it is something that's distinct from the individual who might, who might hold that office because certain councillors might not do what we want them to do or might not operate in the right way, um, uh, that somehow this the, the, the office is deficient. You know, in any democracy, at any level, whether it's, whether it's a European parliament, national parliament or local government, um, you know, it, it, it's the vagaries of the electoral system that will put certain people um, uh, into uh, into office. Uh, but once they're in office, they come with all of this sort of uh, 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 this ability to make things happen and to uh, uh, to be able to uh, get things done for their locality. So, you know, we have to de- we do have to distinguish the two, and we can't immediately assume that the office is is deficient because a particular individual may not be um, performing uh, as well as they as well as you might want a council to perform. Because, as I said earlier, with eighteen thousand across the country, you're going to get the whole gamut of human vices and and virtues. We can't condemn everybody. Uh, um, uh, you know, simply because uh, one might not be uh, up to scratch, but we do tend to that often is tends to what happens. You know, to be, something will go wrong in 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 one council somewhere, and all of a sudden it's a stick to beat um, the whole of local government with. Um, so I think a lot of my arguments about um, uh, strengthening local government and strengthening the role of of the councillor, you know, they're very much sort of sit together. Um, one of the one of the things I would, I've always sort of argued for, and none of the things that I set out in the book, by the way, is a is a sort of 
you know, flight of fancy. I think I say that at some point. It's not a, it's not a flight of fancy, fantasy. It's not, you know, me just plucking ideas out of the air. Everything I've argued for in the book exists somewhere in local government across the continent and, and, the, and the wider globe. They might not all exist together, but they exist somewhere. And there's just a menu of things out there that we could... Um, we could draw on so one of the so so the radical first step what would i do you know uh, 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 to, to to make a counselor's life easier firstly i would see them and this is a, a sort of the, the the easy step if you like i would treat them in the way that we treat members of parliament when it comes to resources now i think an awful lot of members of the public think that this is the case that that you know they have assistants they have three or four researchers working each for each one of them they're on full-time salaries they're you know um uh, uh they're extremely well supported by and large the the the, the resources that we provide to our councillors are not up to scratch some are some aren't but nationally, I think there should be a minimum standard that council should have to provide in terms of support to to all of their councillors, whether they're um, the leader or, or a humble opposition backbencher. They all are entitled to research support, library facilities, uh, res- uh, support with casework uh, and constituency work. Uh, backroom services in terms of policy development, none of which they really have. I mean, democratic services officers um, do a wonderful job in supporting councillors, but they can only do so much with the resources that they are they have available. So, this sort of min- this idea of a minimum basic package of support that every councillor should receive on whatever council they happen to sit uh, would be, you know, would be one first and quite easy step. I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've had councillors say, but we can't possibly do that. The electorate won't um, won't put up with us spending all this money on ourselves. And I get that argument. But being a councillor is a role that the electorate will require you to undertake and to do things within the area and to maybe even help them out individually. If, if we can't resource that properly, um, then it just makes the expectations of the electorate more likely to be dashed than to be um, uh, fulfilled. And councils can, you know, we should, particularly in tiered tiered areas, operate on the basis that councils can share resources. There's lots of shared services between councils nowadays. Supporting members with good facilities may be one of them. So that will be my sort of my easy, you know, this can be done tomorrow sort of thing. Um, then the then the sort of I suppose the max you know the, the change at the other end of the scale that would require some form of legislation and I am picking one from many. We we touched on this earlier when was when we were talking about the um, the role that councillors now have with holding to account other organisations outside of the council. Now, our elected members, our councillors are elected. They have a legitimacy that no other organisation that they have anything to do with um, has. They have the, the, the legitimacy that comes from the public vote. <clears throat> our councillors require that right to uh, call to account, to subpoena to attend meetings, for want of a better word, uh, 
any organisation, a representative from any organisation that they feel it would be appropriate to talk to um, within their council and to receive uh, information, advice and uh, and um, uh, data and research from those external bodies as a matter of a legal right, I would argue. We, you know, our, our councillors' right to information from their own council is is uh, it's not as great as it could be. And I've had councillors on many, you know, more occasions than um, I'd care to mention tell me they've had to use freedom of information requests to get data from the council of which they are an elected member. Now, if anything is bonkers beyond belief, that is that you've been elected to a council and the only way you can get them to tell you something is by using a procedure that's open to all members of the public. Um, I, that's just crackers. So this right to information. And one of the things I have, have, have said to councillors, you know, when I ask this question, what magic wand would you like? Information comes up. You know, we want information. Uh, and I think that that, to me, that legal right, unhindered, unfettered right to information from both their council they sit on and external bodies would really enhance um, uh, the role that they play. And I think it also then starts to see them, when we talk about reconfiguring that role, it starts to see the councillor as a governor, as somebody who can make things happen locally. Uh, and that's where we, that's the next step up for our elected members in in this country is to is to empower them to get things done locally and i think that will be a good first step in in that direction thank you for explaining um those steps i think i i was surprised when reading the book and i think a lot of our listeners will be surprised um to hear kind of not quite just how bad it is but in some ways um sort of the lack of support that i think a lot of us do assume already exists um, is helpful to have clarified. Um, and so in this sense, I think you're not just defending councillors, you're also sort of enabling the public to better understand them, uh, which is really helpful. So this is obviously something you're really passionate about and have done a massive amount of work on, um, numerous research projects over the years. Um, I certainly don't think I could estimate accurately how many interviews. Um, but what are you working on now or next? Right. The the um, I think as as I said to you earlier, updating this, believe it or not, um, having come back from the local government association uh, conference, uh, there is always something else that you will find out when you spend some time talking to councillors about a new frustration, a new challenge, a new role that has developed. So there's always more to be done on understanding uh, the role of the council. But the project, um, uh, I, I, two things I'm working on at the moment that I'm most interested in, I'm, I'm doing some work for, have done some work with the Council of Europe, and it's a report, um, a piece of work that runs in parallel with something the Local Government Association has just um, uh, published itself. And that is about um, the abuse and intimidation that councillors uh, experience in their um in their working lives. I mean, it's almost as though there is an international um, uh, pandemic of violence and, and uh, verbal abuse um, against councillors. And when I started that piece of work, I was just blown over by the information and data that councillors sent me about the way people had been abused, both verbally and physically and online, uh, particularly uh, online. 
with very little or no protection um, uh, for councillors from that uh, from that process, um, and you know um, death threats. Uh, 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 <clears throat> threats of fire bombings, uh, physical attacks on on homes, um, you know, uh, 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 intimidation of family um, is pretty much, unfortunately, becoming commonplace experience for many councillors. So that particular project is looking at what can be done nationally uh, and locally to. Uh, it's it's well, not ironic. It's coincidental that the, the the title of the book is in defence of councillors. This piece of work is what we can actually do to defend them mm. from um, literally uh, physical, defend them. literally defend yeah. them from physical because uh, there is so very little uh, that is available, and often the local police force, not always, not always, but often the local police force's view is well, you you know, you're a councillor. It's part well, of the you job. Signed isn't up it? for this. You signed up. You signed up for that. So that piece of work is um, uh, uh, is I hope will prove to lead to some real changes. Um, I'm also uh, I'm writing a book now with a colleague, Steve Leach, on um, uh, the, the the incessant um, drive, particularly in this country, for bigger and bigger local government we you know we operate in a country where our local government already isn't really very local we have some of the largest units of local government across the globe um existing in england um and yet there's still that pressure to increase the size of local government and um obviously as we do that to cull the number of councillors and uh, it's almost as though reducing the number of councillors is it, it reflects part of this disdain at the centre you know if we can create bigger councils there'll be fewer pesky councillors for us to uh, have to have to deal with so that book um, takes all of the international evidence um, that uh, is available that says that actually bigger local government isn't necessarily always better and there are other ways in which you can improve inverted commas um, uh, local government and the work of the council without creating massive uh uh, uh, new councils from which most people will feel distanced and um, and isolated, and it will be a robust defence of the tiered system of local government as well, which um, is uh, uh, is the majority system across the globe. You know, we often argue in this country that oh, everywhere else has unitary councils. No, they don't. Um, more more countries operate tiered systems of local government because they work. Um, we just haven't ha- uh, really had the motivation to figure out how we can make them work better because governments always leap to the um, uh, to the reorganisation button pretty uh, pretty quickly. So that will be interesting as well. That all sounds very interesting um, and a clear continuation of the work that you're so passionate about. Um, but while you are off. Uh, figuring out how to help local government, how to literally defend uh, the physical persons and property of local councillors. Listeners can read the book that we've been discussing titled In Defence of Councillors from Manchester University Press. Um, Dr. Colin Copas, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you very much. 